Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 92, Generalists and Specialists. Recorded Thursday, August 11th of 2016, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. Peter, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a fairly decent day today. How about you? Uh, beat, and for all sorts of weird reasons, it's been a very strange week, but otherwise, you know, I'm doing alright. Were you chasing the giant mutant canary down the street again? A little bit. Uh, when will you ever learn? I know. In all seriousness, Grant told me some of the reasons. They're good ones, but they are unusual. Yeah, just it's been an odd set of days, and yeah, not even going to go into it. All personal stuff. Anyway, uh, we're talking tonight about generalist versus specialist characters, pros and cons, talking about some of our uh, D&D game, uh, several different things. Peter, do you have anything before we get into our kind of pre-show, pre-topic stuff? I do not. I think we can dive right in. Okay, because there is one thing kind of special that I do want to talk about. Will this be Electric City Comic Con? It is Electric City Comic Con. It's the other con that was this weekend, and oh, yeah. We're recording this right after the weekend of Gen Con. Not Gen Con, but it was still really cool. Uh, So this was in Anderson, South Carolina. Last year, you may remember I said I went because a friend of mine is a librarian in Anderson County and said, hey, you should come to this thing. We want people. And they expected... Three to four hundred people, hoped for five to six hundred, got sixteen hundred. Ooh. Yeah, last year was insane. This year they did a much better job planning everything out because they knew about how many people they were getting. They had a lot more space in the library, and everything was very well organized. As you'd expect, you know, they've got a year of experience under their belt, they know what they're doing. The rough estimate of attendees that I had... Uh, when I left a little bit before the con wrapped up, was over 2,000. I don't have more specific numbers, but that's still up 400 from last year, and that's really good. Yeah, that's a 25% growth year on year. That's impressive. Yeah, it's great, and it was very successful. I had a good time. My wife had a pretty good time. Uh, My daughter had a fantastic time. Awesome. She, in particular, loved all of the cosplayers, and she is super into Pokemon right now. And as you might imagine, Pokemon featured heavily. Yeah, what with Pokemon Go having come out recently and stuff. Exactly. Uh, There was a easily South Carolina Pokemon gym organization there, which was really cool. They had a table set up. They had a couple of tables for playing the uh, tabletop card game. Okay. The gym does the tabletop game, video games, you know, all the Pokemon games competitively, and they're heavily involved in playing Pokemon Go together. So that was pretty cool, uh, and they were really nice. My daughter's favorite Pokemon is a Fennekin, which is basically a Fennec Fox Pokemon that breathes fire and is awfully cute. Okay. <laughs> so she, like, she runs around, you know, pretending to be a Fennekin and pretending to breathe fire, and it's adorable. And so the guy who was running the Pokemon table dug through several packs looking for a Finnegan card and gave her one. Aww. So she's got a, a that one and then like the um, the evolved version of that, not like the ultimate or whatever Mega Evolution, whatever the third tier is. But she's got the first and second tier of Finnegan 
cards, so that's pretty cute. Yeah, that is cute. I spent two hours volunteering, really three hours if you count setup stuff, but two hours volunteering it all through the morning in the gaming section, and that was pretty interesting. Because we had uh, two, four, six, seven tables, I think, set up for people to try games on. And that was packed through most of the day. Huh. Well, that's good. Yeah. And you wouldn't even expect that in a library so much, so that's, that's especially good. Well, so the main library actually has a decent collection of board games. The people who run the con at the library are generally pretty aware of kind of what that culture is right now. They subscribe to, like, anime magazines, and they have an anime club, and they have a video game section in the library, and they have a board game library as part of the library's collection. So, you know, they had, like, Machikoro and Set and uh, Hanabi, a whole bunch of really good games. Of course, they have to keep stuff family-friendly, as you would expect. Yeah, but that's, I mean, it's not hard to find solid family-friendly games. No, of course A not. A lot of the best-designed ones are family-friendly, so that's that's no hardship. Right. I mean, everything that's even nominated for the German Spiel des Jahres award must be a family-friendly game. That's part of the requirements for that award. So anything that is a nominee or an award winner is fantastic for families. We had Flashpoint set out, which is a cooperative firefighting game. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, it looked really cool. I didn't get a chance to play it, but you're trying to rescue a bunch of people from a burning down house, you know, deal with smoke, keep fire from spreading, try and put all the fires out. You're all working as firefighters. I spent pretty much two hours straight using We Didn't Playtest This At All as bait for families. Ha! It was nice. fantastic. I, I just kind of had a table. I was up there going, hey, family, come here. You look like you haven't played anything but Monopoly and Trouble in ages. Come here, let me show you how much better things are. And I deal about, we didn't playtest this at all, which is an Asmati Games game that I adore. Yes, I remember having a lot of fun playing that with you and some of our other friends at Fear the Con a couple of years back. Oh, yeah, it's so silly, and it's so much fun, and it... And it's so family-friendly. Yeah, it, it, and that's what it's for. I will link, we didn't playtest this at all in the show notes. It's Asmati Games, like I said, they also made Win, Lose, or Banana. I didn't break it out, but I also had the expansion with me. We didn't playtest this either. And I left We Didn't Playtest This Legacy, whatever it's called, at home, which they have an, a legacy version of this. But basically it's a play. You have two cards in your hand. You draw one. You read the instructions on your cards and you pick one to play. And it's things like go around the table and vote for certain things, but don't tell anyone what you're voting for. If the vote passes or vote fails, things happen. Everybody at the table throws rock, paper, scissors, and there's multiple copies of that card, but they all have different results. Like, everyone who threw scissors loses. Yeah. If you beat the person to your right, they lose. You know, things like that. There are cards where everybody loses. There are cards where everybody wins. There are cards where if somebody just won and you're still in the game, you can spite them and you lose and they lose together. It's super silly. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fun, quick playing game. I mean... Playing through a round of it takes, what, maybe three to five minutes a lot of the time? I've had it go 30 seconds. It's super silly. And, you know, I had kids just keep coming back to the table, bringing their parents over after I'd showed it to them. So that was really fun. And, you know, some of them, as you might imagine, were, oh, yeah, you know, we know all about board games, people. Right. But there were a lot of people who were just there because their kids are into characters. Right. 
And so it was a lot of, I've talked to a lot of moms and dads who had no idea that things were any better than, you know, Scrabble. Well, and let's not also forget that geek culture is broad and deep. I mean, I've been geeky pretty much all my life, but I'd never heard of We Didn't Play Test This at all until you mentioned it to me once. Oh, sure. And I didn't get a chance to play it until that time at Fear the Con. So there's so much out there that sometimes the, well, I think we're both on record as liking small local conventions anyways, but a lot yeah. of the time these things give you an opportunity to discover stuff that you just wouldn't be exposed to otherwise. Exactly. So that was a lot of fun. It really was just kind of being a, an ambassador for, hey, come over here and game for a couple hours. It was great. I am not exactly an extrovert. Like, I have to recharge after yeah. doing a lot of social stuff. But I really like turning on that social part and basically networking and having fun with people and meeting strangers and being, hey, come here, you know? I, I, I enjoy that. When we went to Fear the Con... It was just, I don't know who you are, but I'm bear-hugging you and introducing myself. Come here. Well, and I mean, at Fear the Con, a lot of it was, I know you by your forum name, but this is the first time I've ever met you face-to-face. -face. I already like you. Come here, let's go do something fun. Exactly. <laughs> um, I have to give a huge shout-out to all of the cosplayers. This is a very cosplay-heavy convention. It's kind of a, a miniature geek culture con. So they have some professional cosplayers come up. Uh, in particular, White Knight cosplay, Heroes in Force, and one woman named Amanda Finley, the local Ghostbusters crew, and of course, there's everybody else in costume who just showed up in costume for fun. Some very good costumes, and a lot of people who, you know, were just getting started, and were still totally into it. You know, sometimes, like, sometimes you go to a convention and your costume isn't great, I'm here in, like, cardboard tubes, and that person has spent months making the perfect costume with carefully sewn-on details and, you know, hand-cut foam, and I just feel bad. No. Like, yeah. everybody was super supportive, and that was really cool. Like, everybody of any cosplay tier, right? You know, just getting started, if you've been doing this for ages, everybody was having fun. So that was really cool. Awesome. In particular... My daughter would go up to all of these cosplayers with a little autograph book because they give autograph books uh, for kids. What a fantastic idea. And so she'd just go up, could you give me your autograph? And, you know, like she's got a Wonder Woman autograph and a Captain Marvel autograph and a Captain America autograph and random person just kind of in a Victorian steampunk costume who's not a particular character. And she's like... And we're, we had to assure this this girl, look, it doesn't matter that you're not a character. She thinks your costume is awesome and wants your autograph, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> she was just getting everybody's autograph, you know, all the Ghostbusters. There's a whole team of people who cosplay as Ghostbusters together. It's really okay, cool. Well, that, I mean, if you're going to do team cosplay, that's definitely one of the ones to go for. They actually do birthday parties. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, so do the Heroes and Force folks. They um, they go to birthday parties and do hero training for kids. This is how you stop bullying. Things like that. Nice. It's really cool. Uh, they didn't do the hero training at the con, but only because they were actually down a lot of people and not enough, not enough of them came for kind of what they wanted to do with that. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, a couple other people I want to specifically mention, and then we'll move on. Uh, Boardwalk, which is the... Greenville, South Carolina uh, gaming store. 
uh, my personal store of choice, even though it's not the closest to me. They're well-established. They have a big space. They sell lots of stuff. Um, they have a good Magic and Pokemon League and all sorts of stuff. They actually were the gaming vendor, and they brought a lot of games, helped teach games alongside us, and were just awesome to work with. Um, one of the women who worked there uh, was just like, can I just steal your little one? Just kind of walked around with our five-month-old for a little while. Just like, <laughs> oh, he's great. So that was kind of fun. Uh, Hatcore. I got to talk about these folks. They make custom geek hats. Like and, baseball caps or? No, like uh, kind of beanies, but you could also get them with ears. Uh, you can get the thing where it's like all the way down to your hands, kind of like gloves attached or mittens attached to the hat. Uh, okay. Big floppy ears. Like they do all sorts of cool stuff. If you go to hatcore.com, and again, I'll link it in the show notes. They make little brain slugs. They do custom stuff. My wife got an Okami hat. And Okami, for those who don't know, is a fantastic PS2 era video game and uh, just gorgeous. Really fun platformer, well-written. One of the best games, I think, for the PS2. I've only ever seen the name of that one written, so I always figured it was Okami. Nope, it's Okami. Uh, There's an emphasis on the O. But amazing game. And she got a hat for that because that was like one of the first games my wife and I played through together, even though it's single player, like really exploring together and, and having fun with. So we it's got a kind of a special thing for us. And it's just a really good game. Got some good memories wrapped up in that one that yeah, have nothing so, to do with the quality of the game itself. Huh? Yeah. And so the hat is kind of like that character's head because you, you play as a wolf uh, with these very distinctive red markings. And so it's got this white hat with these distinctive red markings on it. It looks really cool. And they're going to do a custom order, once I send it in, uh, for a Wonder Woman hat for my daughter. Because she loves Wonder Woman. So they're going to do one that is the tiara in a band around the beanie. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so I'm super excited about that. Because basically what I'm thinking is kind of do the dark blue for most of it. And then the tiara with the red star. Yeah, I could see how that would work. Yeah, and so you have the you know a Wonder Woman tiara that is a a warm cap for winter. She's going to be the envy of the other kids at her school. Obviously. Fanboy Glass, uh, fanboyglass.com, they do etched glassware, shaker pint glasses, big steins if you're that kind of person, uh, shot glasses, coffee mugs, some other stuff, just general glassware, but it's all etched with geek symbols. So, like, for example, they had ones with all of the Pokemon Go teams. They had... Uh, various Doctor Who references, Firefly, uh, Star Trek, like any nerd property was etched onto something. And it's all very carefully done and looks really good. They do a great job. Last year, I got a shaker pint glass with the Mega Man E-Tank on it. So, you know, when I drink beer, I'm drinking from an E-Tank, which is great. And then this year, I got a little coffee mug with the uh, Star Trek Next Generation symbol and T Earl Grey hot on it, which anybody who's watched Next Generation will get. Yeah, I can't imagine what you might have wanted to say after that. Make it so? Yes. Yeah, or possibly engage. Yeah, or even just calm, you know, and then somebody walks through a door. I should do that. But yes, the first thing I drink out of it, Earl Grey. Yeah, of course. Of course. It's right on there. I mean... It's perfect. Um, Last thing I want to plug is a comic called Princeless. Now, I am not the first person to plug this. Uh, Jeremy Whitley, 
the author, has gotten a lot of great press for Princeless. Uh, he's also drawn and I think written some My Little Pony comics, a whole bunch of other stuff. He's a he's a pretty well-known indie-ish comic book artist and writer. Okay. And he's semi-local, so he came down and he was selling Princeless and a few other things at a table there in the vendor hall. Princeless is an amazing comic. It's about a black girl in a world that sort of expects all of the princesses to be, you know, fair white maidens. And so he's like, well, that's not really how I operate. This is not my world. And she's much more independent and much more fun than any of the princesses who spend their years locked up in a tower guarded by a dragon. And her family puts her in a tower with a dragon. She basically spends a little bit of time insulting knights and mocking them, encouraging the dragon to eat them. (laughs) And then one day says, I'm sick of this, pulls a sword out from under the table, pulls the armor off of one of the uh, deceased knights, hops on the dragon's back and takes off. Oh my. It's fantastic. He wrote it for his daughter, who is biracial and was kind of saying like, well, you know, none of these fairy tales are people like me. And he was like, well, let me change that. And it's really cool. Uh, It's really sweetly written in a lot of ways, which is weird for something that's really got a lot of cynicism in it. Like, you know, hey, that's not how the world works, really. Yeah. It's very aware, but it's really cool. Uh, It's also got a spinoff for older kids that's a little bit darker called The Pirate Princess, which is kind of just a straight up awesome, cool people being pirates story. Hmm. Yeah. So we got four volumes of Princeless and got uh, the author to sign three of them for our daughter. So very cool. Uh, And one last person I need to give a shout out to Alistair, who is a Saving the Game listener who came from a couple hours away with his family to the con. All right. Yeah, Alistair, it was great meeting you. Mrs. Alistair, I'm sorry I didn't catch your name. Harrison, thank you all for coming. Harrison's their adorable kid. It was great seeing you guys. I'm really hoping that we get to meet more Saving the Game listeners in the future, because that's really fun. Yeah, every time we've ever met them, it's always been a good time for us, so... It really has. Okay, so we need to get to our Patreon question. We need to get to our scripture. We need to get to our main topic. Let's do the Patreon question real yeah, quick. Yeah, we need to make with the move in here. So We do. But I had a lot of cool stuff to talk about. It was a great call. Yes, you did. All right. Uh, rolling the die here. Okay. That's going to be Jim. All right. And I'm, par- I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit just to kind of keep it short. This is uh, from Jim Nanban. In a game at the table, how can I show the difficulty of doing the right thing or even identifying what is right without being overdramatic or two-dimensional? How do I avoid being silly or melodramatic or even being disruptive at the table? It's an interesting question. I think as much as anything else, you've got the the correct word in the question, which is show. It's, It's classic writing advice, you know, show, don't tell. Don't talk a lot about how hard it is. Just act it out, play the part, and accept the consequences. I think maybe the biggest thing is accept the consequences of doing the right thing. If doing the right thing is hard, it will be costly. And if you just pay that cost without complaining and do it cheerily, first of all, I think that's kind of the right Christian way to approach it. And second, I think that indicates to the other players at the table through their characters 
this is tough, but it's totally worth it. Yeah, I, I think you've pretty much hit the nail on the head there. The, the one thing that I would add is if you're having a hard time figuring out what this looks like, pick out some people that you think of as role models or particularly virtuous or good people throughout history and look at their lives and see how they didn't make doing the right thing look overdramatic or two-dimensional. I mean, there's hundreds of people from history, from well-written works of fiction, from your own life, hopefully, that you can look at that have just kind of done the right thing as a matter of course. Modeling, at least at first, a character that is supposed to be the one doing the right thing after one or a composite of several of those people, it, it can give you something to grab onto for flavor purposes. Even if you know what the right action is, sometimes it can be hard to figure out how to depict it. And I think having a, a good frame of reference can help with that. Yeah. Um, I realized that I sort of said, how do I show the difficulty of doing the right thing without being overdramatic? And my answer is, well, show it and don't be dramatic. It's not the best answer in the world, I'm afraid. But I think if you're not just holding it up continuously and saying, look how difficult this is and look at me doing the right thing, I think you're on the right track. Yeah, it, this is a hard question because it's, it's very difficult to answer it without having some kind of concrete example to point back to, mm -hmm. which is kind of why I suggested concrete examples of, you know, find people who are good role models and use them as a template. I would say maybe try and do it without letting anyone know. Let the results suddenly appear in-game. If you can do it entirely by passing notes to the GM, that might be a good way to start. There's a certain element of the, you know, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing when you're giving. That idea of keep it very secret when you're being generous. But also I think surprising the table and not making a big deal out of it might be a more effective way to approach it. Yeah, and I mean, as we talked about a little bit in our last episode, surprise is, is a good thing with any kind of acts of, you know, virtue or rewards for said virtue. It it, it helps it keep from being cheesy. Yeah, I so, think so. the unexpected is, is good in these kinds of situations. Agreed. So there you go. And if you want us to read a question out for you, if you're not a Patreon backer yet, you should go ahead and back us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash saving the game. Uh, likewise, if you want to support the show through non-monetary means, share us out on social media, review us on iTunes, rate us on iTunes. Every review helps us a lot, like a lot. So please do that if you haven't already. That's big for us. Yeah. And just listen with your friends and discuss it with them. That means a lot to us, too. Of course. And if you want to hear old episodes, you can always visit us on the web, stgcast.org. Peter, you want to start with our scripture here? Sure. This is Exodus 31, verses 1 through 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed Aholiab, son of Ahizamak, of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I have given ability to all the skilled workers to make everything I have commanded to you. And our second bit of scripture here is Colossians 3, 
verses 23 to 24. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. So, we're talking tonight about specialist versus generalist characters, and this is going to be a quick topic, and I think that's good since we had all of Electric City Comic Con to talk about, but this came up as basically an argument that we were having during character creation for our D&D game. Although it was much more civil than you would think of as an argument, typically. Oh, being. sure. It was just kind of a back and forth, like, well, it really kind of centered around the use of the feats in um, 5e. It did. So, for those of you unaware, um, if you've played any version of D&D since 3rd edition, you're aware of the idea of feats, basically perks that your characters get that let you do special things, give you bonuses, etc. And 5th edition, those are an optional rule. You can take a feat in place of a stat advancement at certain levels if your GM allows the use of feats. And I was dead set against feats. Yeah? And it's kind of weird, because, first of all, my D&D experience began with 3rd edition. As did mine. Which is super feat-heavy. And some of that may be kind of a reaction against it. In fact, I think it is all a reaction against that. Uh, trying not to be the aggressively optimizing character creator that I was when I was playing D&D 3rd edition. Right. And even as the GM, you can kind of get into that trap. Oh, but I yeah, was you really can. <laughs> struggling to let go of my concept of what feats were. And through that feat thing, I was struggling to resolve a conflict between very specialized characters versus very generalized characters, and really trying to kind of keep a tight grip on character creation because of something I was afraid of, which is that everybody was going to hyper-specialize and in some ways really hurt the game I wanted us to play. Oh, silly Grant, you have a bunch of generalist players and you were worried about hyper-specialization. <laughs> yeah, when you picked a feat in D&D 3rd Edition, you know, you could just kind of look at the list of feats and pick ones you qualified for and that sort of thing. But there were some feats that you had to take four, five, six prereqs for. And it was this chain of feats, right? Where, okay, I take this, and then I take this, and then I take this. Each one kind of unlocks the next one. They're all prereqs for each other. And maybe the, the last one you want is like the end of a five-feet chain, which is a problem because by default, characters get seven feats right. total over 18 levels. All of your character creation choices are made before you start playing. Which was a major problem with 3.5 and I think probably even Pathfinder to this day is just the amount of advanced planning that a lot of people do in their character creation phase at the beginning of the campaign because you kind of have to. And there are plenty of people who love that. I certainly enjoy it at times. As an end unto itself, it's fun. Yeah, and you know, I'm not going to say that people are having the wrong sort of fun when they do it. No, absolutely but not. It's no longer my cup of tea. It was once, but it no longer is. And what I was really afraid of was that all of you were going to hyper-specialize with feats, right? Because that's how you did it. And as a result, you were going to have these very static characters that could not change, could not adapt, could not grow through play, at least not mechanically. Right. I mean, obviously how the character presents themselves 
you know, all the non-numerical things can grow and change no matter what your system is. But all the mechanical stuff I was afraid was going to be really locked down and everyone is going to be like, well, I have to use this particular type of Warhammer or all of my feet stop working and I'm no longer having fun. Right. Well, and you wanted to have an element of like discovery and kind of play around with some of the treasure stuff too. So you wanted us to be like, does anybody know what this thing is? Does anybody yeah. want to try using it? If I give you guys, you know, a plus one, I don't know, plus one flail, well, that's really powerful because this is going to be a setting where magic items are pretty cool. I don't want people to go, oh, well, I don't have any of the flail feats. All of my feats are in longsword, so I'm just going to sell it. Yeah. Well, that's really boring. And that's what I was afraid of, right? That everybody was going to be so specialized that parts of the game that I wanted to include weren't going to be relevant. And I think that's a common trap for super specialized characters, which is kind of why we're talking about this more generally. Yeah. We might as well kind of formally define our terms here, because we're definitely into that part of the episode. Well, so. I, I don't even know that we need to. I think everybody understands the idea of, you know, specializing. Yeah. I think everybody understands the idea of a generalist, right? The jack-of-all-trades character who can kind of do anything. They're not the best at everything, but they can do a lot. Yeah. Details of this are obviously going to change game to game, system to system, but I think everybody's kind of aware of the concept. Certainly, there are games that encourage one over the other. Again, yeah. D&D 3.5, very strongly emphasized specializing. The skill system was all about specializing. Everything was all about specializing. Other games are very, very general, either because their mechanics are very broad or because they just don't care as much. Or because they're trying to simulate something where characters are a bit more omni-skilled. I mean, um, Knight's Black Agents from yeah. Pelgrain comes to mind as something where your characters are going to be a little more specialized, or a little less specialized than your average D&D character would be. Because they're spies. They have to have a bunch of different skills. They have standard means by which they approach things. And those are unique to each character, right? Like, right. I'm the hacker, I hack really well. But the fact that I am the hacker does not mean I can't shoot a gun, I can't sneak. I'm still a spy. Yeah. I'm still a Jason Bourne character, I'm just the hacker in that Jason Bourne movie. Yeah. So A good example for that is Leverage, where they all kind of have their thing, but they can help each other. Yeah. And there are pros and cons of each of these. For specialists, the big thing, I think, is that moment to shine. When your thing comes up, the spotlight is all yours. Yeah, and you can make a huge impact on the situation in the game as a specialist because you've put all of your eggs in that proverbial basket. Well, now it's mm -hmm. time to make an omelet, and you can make a really good omelet. Very true. The other thing is that these are often easy to make in character creation, easy to play, because you're doing your thing. The fighter hits things. Yeah, the, the rogue sneaks around and, you know, does covert stuff and steals things, maybe. Sure. Uh, depending on the kind of rogue, because I yeah. think rogues can also sometimes be generalist characters. We're using D&D as an example again, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. rogues can be specialists or generalists and anywhere in between. It's especially like in 3.5 and later, it's very weird. Sure. But the Shadowrun guy who has all of his skill points and gear based on driving really well. When it's drive time, 
He knows what he's doing. He's good at it. He's having fun doing that. Uh, our friend's character in the Shadowrun game. There are some cons to specialists. I don't think these are necessarily cons in every game, okay? This is subjective. Yeah. But specialists do require planning in most cases, and so if your fun is letting a character mechanically grow in response to a game, that might be difficult if you're playing a specialist character. It might not be, too. There there may be enough different ways that the character can specialize in a certain kind of thing where that can grow somewhat organically, but... Yeah, that's true. The big one, of course, is if it's not your turn to do the thing you're really good at, you're not really doing a lot. The character is deficient, and in many cases that can mean you're not doing anything. Now, everybody takes a turn in the spotlight in a good game, and that's okay, but it could be that your character's just sitting on the sidelines for a while, and that can get dull, and that can lead to people staring at their phones because, you know, well, we're not doing thy thing, so I'm not really engaged anymore. That's a problem. Yeah. Likewise, when it is your time to shine, if that character is so dominant that nobody else gets to participate... That can be really annoying as well. That means everyone else is looking at their phones because, oh, well, it's Peter's time to do his thing, so uh, yeah, we're just going to sit out. The The quintessential example that I always think of on this is in certain D&D editions, once the wizard gets fireball in any kind of a masked encounter, it's like, oh, there's 30 kobolds charging at you. <laughs> no, there's two. Anybody who has something that can negate the power of a lot of the other members of the party is always going to be a little tricky, right? Yeah. The other thing is sometimes you can just over-invest and over-specialize. Oh, well, I I have to have uh, adamantine chain whip or nothing my character does works. Well, that's very limiting. And after a certain point, putting more and more and more into this thing you're so dominant at doesn't help anymore. No, you've hit the point of diminishing returns. Yeah, is there a a difference between overkilling all of the monsters by 200 hit points versus 150 hit points? Well, and if if you're rolling a d20 to hit, and you would need to roll a negative 5 on a 20-sided die that's numbered 1 through 20 in order to miss, you have gone too far. In most cases, yeah, you know, but if it's... I mean, if there's a lot of penalties and stuff, yes. But I mean, in like any situation that's appropriately leveled for your character, if you are past the point of failure by like some arbitrary double-digit percentage point value, you've probably over-specialized. And that does also bring up the problem of repetitiveness, right? Mm Mm-hmm. It can get very samey to do the same thing over and over because that's what your character does. Yeah. And does it so well that it's no longer a challenge or otherwise it's this is the only thing I'm good at. I can't succeed at anything else. So I'm just going to try and make this the only resolution I have to any problem. Well, and that can also lead to the problem of the party resolving things exactly the same way. Yeah, yeah, we're going to send in the awesome wizard. He's going to blow them all up. We're going to go through and pick through the ruins afterwards. Done. Okay, next encounter. It doesn't matter whether we're fighting skeletons or a dragon, the plan is exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, The last problem, and this this is something that you can fix by talking to your GM in most cases, but I have seen games where this happens, and this is the kind of thing I was worrying about in our game, 
where people were so specialized that they no longer fit into the campaign or they would have huge periods of downtime because we weren't doing their thing. I was worried about that. I didn't want characters to feel useless at any point in the game, especially since we've only got three players. Yeah. I wanted to make sure nobody was going to be twiddling their thumbs on the sidelines for a while. Now, of course, generalists have pros and cons as well. Obviously, the big one is a generalist gets to play whenever they want. If somebody's pretty good at most things, well, that means they can be in the spotlight, you know, at most points. If yeah, they if want you're to. the second best in the party at literally everything, well, then you're probably in just about every scene. Sometimes it is difficult to make a generalist, much as in some systems it is difficult to make a specialist. That can be its own kind of challenge. Which can sometimes be a fun challenge, it bears sure. mentioning. That relates directly to a con I want to talk about in a minute. Okay. But the nice thing about a generalist, or one of the nice things about these generalist characters, is you're never bored, right? You, you're never helpless, and there are certain people who get really upset when their characters are helpless. Yeah, and I, I will confess to being one of those people. I like having the ability to contribute. I don't like feeling like I just have to sit and watch stuff happen in a game. I will say, having run games for you for a little bit, it's more for you, more than I like the ability to contribute. You actively revolt when your character doesn't have any agency in their situation. Yeah, I generally try and figure a way out of that very fast. Even knowing out of character, look, Grant's not going to do anything terrible to my character. This is essentially a cutscene. Yeah. Even then you are still desperately bouncing off the walls of the cutscene, hitting A, trying to skip it, trying to get through it. You're, you're doing everything you can to take control back and knock things off the rails. And there are people... I wouldn't say I'm intentionally that disruptive about it, but it's, it's oh, no, definitely... Oh, no, it's not intentional. It's not intentional, but you definitely do it. <laughs> okay. Um, well, it's just something that I plan for now. Oh, okay. But if you have a, a generalist character, if you're that kind of person... You usually have something you can fall back on. You know, hey, we're all tied up. Well, good thing I put those couple of ranks in Stage Magician. Or Escape Artist, or my character has, you know, a couple of small knife blades that are tucked into seams of his clothing that he can get at, or... Yeah, whatever it is. And of course, this does mean that there's a wider variety of in-game experiences available for this character. Because the GM doesn't have to shape the story around the three things the characters in the party can do. Yep. We need to go sailing? Cool. Well, there's somebody who at least knows their way around a boat. Yeah, they might not be the captain, but they can at least help. I can run a story of having to cross a desert because there's somebody who has enough ranks in survival and desert survival for no particular reason that we can do that. Yeah. That's cool. That's fun. It opens up a lot of storytelling possibilities. Well, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to play a character with such a nature focus in this particular game is because it's like, well... I admit, I metagamed it a little bit. It's like, okay, we're going to be doing a colonization game, so I want my character to have skills that will be useful when you are away from civilization, and I want him to have a lot of them. So I've got nature, survival, and I think one other kind of rangery skill, even though I'm playing a cleric. And that's absolutely fine. This is one of those cases where I'm totally okay with metagaming, because it's, well... What kind of character would go on an expedition like this? Probably not somebody who only thrives in an urban environment. Yeah. That's fine. You're making a character well-suited for the game. 
Oh no, how terrible. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> you say that, but I have seen those GMs before. I know. I think we've all played under them, and it's it's just kind of silly. Hopefully most of them grow up over time. Yes, and you know, my wife is playing a character who is not especially well-suited to being out in the wilderness, exploring, cutting her way through jungle, or that sort of thing, but she's well-suited to other parts of the game. Well, and her character is also incredibly smart, so... Sure. she'll figure it out. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there are some cons to generalists. First of all... Well, as Grant alluded to, it's easy to become a spotlight hog if you're, you've got one of them, which is yeah. something that I know that I fight against and try to pull myself back from actively sometimes. Uh, if you're useful in every situation, the temptation is very much there to try and insert yourself into every situation. Likewise, if you are the best all the time at every situation, well, what is the rest of the party doing? What is the rest of the player group doing? Everybody's back to looking at their phones because, oh, well, Peter's character is just doing it for us. All right. Why am I even here? Yeah, fortunately, most of the systems that we've played, it's not possible to be the best at everything. No, in fact, many of the systems we have played in our group kind of go the other way. It assumes you're going to specialize. Yeah. And if you don't specialize, if you try and play a generalist, it punishes you for it. Which can be one of the other cons. Right. Now, that is system-specific. Like, it's yeah. not a huge deal. It's just something you need to be aware of. If you are playing a game where you are going to be the guy with the, the heavy machine gun all the time, points in flower arranging just aren't going to help you. Because there may be times when you want to do the flower arranging, but the system assumes you're putting all of your points in the thing you're supposed to be good at, so If you're trying to be good work. at three or four different things, you're only going to be as good as somebody who's a quarter as good as you are at the four things that you are good at. As awkward of a sentence as that is. Right, but it, it makes sense. There yeah. are games that assume specialization. Sometimes generalists have more stuff to keep track of. Yeah. If you're bad at bookkeeping, this may be a problem. This is especially bad if you use multiple splat books. Although, in my experience, and again, this is mostly D&D 3.5 and Pathfinder, the specialists are the ones who are digging through all the splat books and keeping track of very complicated things. The generalists are just going... I'll take a little bit of this. I don't have to do a whole lot of note-taking on that. It's a little bonus here. It's simple. Yeah. Well, in 3-5, if you wanted to play a generalist, you were probably playing a bard, a rogue, or a monk. Right. So... And then, well, no, what you were doing is just using the core set of spells out of the player's handbook and playing a wizard. Well, there's that too, but... Uh, but anyway, the bookkeeping can be a problem for generalists. Yeah. Remember I said, you know, if you are the best at everything, it's really frustrating. If you are kind of good at everything, but not good enough to succeed most of the time, that can get really frustrating. It can. Uh, and I've tried making characters like that, and it it is just tedious, because you're, you're really hoping for that 10% chance to succeed this time. Whereas everyone else is like, oh, I've got a 60% chance of success, it's no problem. Well, or in certain games, even that 50 or even 70% chance, you know, a lot of the time the dice will be like, yeah, this is really important. I don't care. <laughs> no. And and that's true of, you know, any game involving dice, of sure. course. But when it happens all the time because you're just not good enough at everything that you're trying to do. That can be a problem. 
Right. Now, these are usually also systems that assume some sort of specialization, but not always. And then the last one that I'd really like to hit on, and this one I have run into myself a few times, generalist characters, because they're so well-rounded and so spread out, can sometimes be hard to get a solid handle on as people. If you're playing a more specialized character... You have a hook. Yeah, you've got a hook. You, you've got, okay, well, you know, um, our, our friend who's playing the fighter in the D&D game is a perfect example. It's like, what would make somebody the most awesome, amazing, scary fighter? Well, raised as Probably a Probably ripping a shark off his leg and beating something to death with it. Yes, <laughs> or attempting to anyway. But, you know, the guy was raised as a gladiator. He's like, you know, okay, so I was a slave from very young. I've been fighting in arenas my whole life. I've done nothing but fight, fight, fight. I'm an amazing fighter. Okay, that's a hook. There's background. You can extrapolate out from that tree and, you know, get to the stuff with the patron that he had for a little bit and some of the other things that he brought in while during character creation. If you're trying to play somebody who's got, let's say you're starting at fifth level and you've got a level of wizard, a level of fighter, two levels of rogue and a level of cleric. Well, what does that person's personal history even look like? It's not coherent in many cases. I think that's true. And certainly it can work. I mean, if if the person has had to learn all of these different skills in response to... I mean, my character in the Shadowrun game was pretty generalist, and he was ex-military. Well, he'd learned all of these different things because you need to know this on the battlefield. Yeah, and that totally worked in that game because we needed someone who was generally competent. Yeah. And everyone else was specializing so they could be really good at things but trusting that you kind of covered everything else. Yeah. And we've actually fallen into a similar dynamic in this one. Yeah. One generalist and two specialists. Now, in this case, the generalist is a cleric, so I'm going to be specialized in a lot of, like, healing magic in addition to kind of my more skill monkey-ish stuff. But And that's true, although my wife's character also has a lot of skills and is good at a yeah, lot of she things. Does. So <laughs> it's a little more spread out. We do have the classic fighter rogue and spellcaster yeah party so that's kind of cool and spellcaster often tends to be the oh let me dig up a spell to deal with this problem class yeah and one of the things that i really kind of like about fifth edition and i wonder how much i'll continue to like it in play but looking at it at least i like the fact that you don't get all that many spells per day but the really basic ones you can just use forever and that, that, I think, is kind of a nice balance between the more specialized ones that you have a limited use of and you can you have to ration these and be careful with them, and little tiny effects like, oh, I can change the color of that candle flame or something. It means you don't have to stop being a spellcaster. Right. And I, I do like that. It's flavorful as much as anything else. Yeah. So to wrap this up, again, we're not really recommending generalist or specialist per se. It is obviously a question of taste. But I think there are some considerations that you need to think about. What game are you playing? Yep. What game is the GM running? If you're the GM, you know, what are your players hinting at with their characters, right? And ultimately, I think, is this character going to have the right amount of time in the spotlight? Are they never going to be in it because they're always failing? Are they always going to be in it because they're always succeeding? Are they dominating this one thing so much, and it's going to be something that we do a lot in this game? Are they so dominant that nobody else gets to participate? Is this character a problem? 
Is this thing that this specialized character is going to be at something that's even going to come up regularly enough to be satisfying? Right. Like, none of the characters in our D&D group, for example, are particularly good at diplomacy, and that's fine because diplomacy's not coming up in this game. If somebody was a a real, you know, sweet talker, well, that's not super useful. At least so far as you guys know. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We've only had one session. Yeah, so. my, my character does have some of that, but not a whole lot. Right. And it'll come up because you kind of know the kind of game I'm playing. But if this were a pure dungeon crawl, somebody specialized in diplomacy and talking people out of fighting and that sort of thing just wouldn't have any fun. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're playing a courtly intrigue game, that person might be dominant. Right. And, you know, those are things we just talked about. But be aware of what you are deciding to play based on the game that you're playing. Yes. And I think that's kind of where I want to wrap this up. Got anything else? No, I think we've hit this one pretty good. Yeah. Short topic, but we had a lot of other stuff to talk about, and that's fine. And also, we just gave you, like, two hours of content with Gameable Disney, or Gameable Saturday morning now, so come on. Yeah, we gotta do a short one to cleanse the palate here, so... Exactly. Incidentally, if any of you were confused, we did release two episodes the two weeks before this. A two-parter that we did, and Peter was awesome, edited two and a half hours of audio down to something that could be released all in one week, rather than stretching that out over uh, two releases. So, go Peter. Thank you. I hope I don't have to do that again anytime soon, but that episode's content was so good that it really wasn't all that much of a chore. Yeah. And it's my turn to edit anyway, so there we go. Yes, it is. (laughs) All right, well... From both of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We will catch you guys next time. See you later, folks. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.